Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Alvin Grissom II. Alvin is an assistant professor of computer science at Ursinus College. Alvin, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Absolutely. It was really great meeting you at the recent NeurIPS conference, and in particular, the Black and AI workshop, where you presented the paper that we'll be talking about today, Pathologies of Neural Models Makes Interpretations Difficult. But before we jump into that, I would love to hear a little bit about your background and how you ended up doing research at the intersection of computational linguistics and machine learning. Uh, Sure. Uh, So I have a kind of winding path. I mean, so as an undergraduate, uh, I was uh, actually very interested in AI. uh, And uh, this was before it sort of blew up into what it has recently become. Um, And I was always interested in language as well, uh, just in general, even before I was in college. Um, And actually, uh, not a lot of people know this about me, but I considered becoming an English teacher uh, when I was in high school. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. So that didn't happen. Uh, But... uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I, when I was a master's student, uh, I was getting a master's in computer science and uh, I was doing language processing stuff. Uh, and uh, my thesis was on actually uh, some sentiment analysis, like a qualitative and quantitative uh, analysis of sentiment in Japanese. Um, and, uh, so I really enjoyed doing that, although I'm not sure I'd want to go back and read my master's thesis at this point. <laughs> um, and, uh, after that, I was a, actually a PhD student for a year in linguistics, um, decided that that wasn't really for me, at least at, at that time. And, uh, eventually I worked for a year and then I, uh, went back into sort of the computational linguistics uh, area. And, uh, that's, that's where I am now. Uh, so several, many, many years later. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. And I'm curious about, uh, the decision. Was that a decision that linguistics wasn't for you, but computational linguistics was, or was it just the timing around the PhD? Well, it wasn't the timing. I think, uh, there were a lot of things going on. Uh, I was, this is, <laughs> I'm not sure how, how deeply I want to go down this rabbit hole, but uh, <laughs> there, um, there are some contentious issues in linguistics, and uh, I didn't realize this at the time. Um, I mean, I had some sense of it, uh, but um, I mean, there are a lot of things going on, but I, I'm, I still am very interested in linguistics, but I wanted to get kind of a broader view, and I was, it was more satisfying, or at least maybe satisfying isn't the word, but more, um, it was easier. I, I felt better about the intellectual claims I was making, uh, and comp- I could make, uh, in computational linguistics than I did in some of the linguistic stuff I was interested in. And I'm, I, I say this with some trepidation because I don't want it to be misinterpreted as saying, uh, linguistics isn't like, isn't real. Or I'm not saying that <laughs> I'm just saying that for me personally, um, and maybe it's just because of my background, but there are some other epistemological reasons I found uh, the computational approach to be um, more to my liking as a, as for a PhD. If I'm going to study something for five plus years, I want to be comfortable with it. And I found that I, I, I personally wasn't. 
Yeah, linguistics is one of those fields that I've done some kind of cursory cursory reading of, and I just I find it fascinating. And so when you said that, I kind of d- got the sense that there was something there that was kind of kind of interesting. Uh, so thank you for elaborating on that. Sure. I mean, actually, it's funny because a lot of the things that bothered me at the time don't bother me so much anymore. Um, but I had to kind of get some distance from it, I think, uh, because I, w- I was kind of in f- fight or flight mode for a whole year when uh, dealing with with a lot of that. And then I got away from it and was able to more leisurely sort of uh, think about the issues. And now I'm not so perturbed anymore. But at the time, I was I was not a happy person. <laughs> so, OK. OK. Yeah. Um, so then your research more recently is focused on the computational side, as we've discussed. Uh, can you elaborate on the kinds of things you've been looking at? My PhD work, which um, so I finished my PhD in 2017, um, and I, I've continued to extend that uh, a little bit. And so that's on simultaneous interpretation. So trying to make computers do simultaneous interpretation. Uh, so uh, like at the UN or something, you know, you someone's speaking in one language and uh, you want to translate that in real time without necessarily waiting for the whole sentence to be uttered. Um, and to, just because that problem is so easy, of course, I'm being sarcastic. Um, <laughs> you know, we wanted to do this f- for what, what are called SOV or subject object verb languages to subject verb object languages. Uh, so a language like Japanese, for example, uh, the verb comes at the end, but in English it comes after the subject. So if you want to translate, you know, I to the store went, you have to wait until you see went at the end of the sentence, uh, before you can say, I went to the store. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a problem. And so, uh, it's we, a problem for humans too, right? It is a problem for humans. So one of the things, you know, we had to ask ourselves was how do humans do this? And what they do a lot of things, uh, so they'll reorder sentences, they'll use more vague words sometimes. But the the first approach we sort of looked at, and which I'm still working on with some other people, is uh, predicting those verbs. So humans are, uh, when they do this, uh, it's actually very cognitively taxing, and they can only do it for so long at one time. I've noticed that at events that the the transcriptionists kind of work in teams and they'll swap off mm-hmm. every half an hour or hour or something like that and i've had people tell me it's because it gets really taxing for them yeah it's it's really i mean you, if you think just think about what they're doing right they're processing two languages simultaneously translating between them and predicting <laughs> the future essentially um, and, uh, you know, your brain can only take so much, uh, for that long. Uh, and so what we, what I wanted, what I worked on, uh, one of the things was trying to see how computers could do this. And so it's like, well, let's see if we can predict these verbs, uh, which in, in terms, like in Japanese, let's see if we can predict the final verb and then just put it in the sentence earlier. It turns out that's very difficult. Um, but we, uh, we, probably, we, uh, worked on that and we, uh, used what's called reinforcement learning. Um, to try to teach a system. We were actually the first people to do this. Uh, some other people have done it before, since then uh, with neural networks and other things. But um, let's see if we can learn under which situations uh, we can trust these predictions. So um, you have like a, a prediction of the verb, you have like a translation, and let's see when should we trust each and what should we do with that information. Um, and so that, this sort of spawned this other project, which has taken on a life of its own, which is just verb prediction and predicting that kind of stuff uh, incrementally, which is, it turns out is a very interesting problem, uh, both for psycholinguistics and uh, for uh, machine learning and computer science. 
Um, and so since then, uh, I've worked on some other stuff, but uh, the, the paper you brought up was the pathologies of neural uh, models make interpretations difficult. And so that looks at... Actually, let me, if you don't mind me hitting pause. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I know it's going pretty fast. <laughs> no, you, you, you touched on something that uh, is potentially interesting, this use of reinforcement learning as part of this verb prediction problem. So it sounds like you made a distinction between reinforcement learning and folks that uh, came along after and did deep reinforcement learning. You were using more traditional RL methods? Right. We were using uh, imitation learning. Yeah. Okay. And so can you can you walk us through kind of how you formulated the problem there and how you applied RL and imitation learning to that particular problem? Sure. Uh, yeah. So uh, you can think of a sentence. So we speak, we don't speak sentences all at once. We speak them. Uh, you could you could say a word at a time, although defining word in some languages can be difficult. Uh, but we we speak them incrementally, um, and uh, you can think of that as like a, a time series of steps. So if you kind of discretize the sentence by word, say, uh, then every time let's so imagine you are a trans or an interpreter. So you can imagine that every time you hear a word, you have a decision to make. Okay, uh, and so what should that, that decision be? So you might want to do nothing because you might not be certain and you might not know enough like to make a good to say anything or to make a translation, an incremental translation. So you might just wait or you might make the best translation you can with what you have. Um, you might make the best translation you can with what you have uh, while making some kind of prediction. So maybe you have a good idea of what the next word is or what the verb is or something like that. Um, and so in a reinforcement learning framework, uh, you typically have uh, some kind of time series of steps. And uh, every time you, you take a step, you choose an action. Uh, so in, in, this, in our case, the actions were things like wait, which means don't try to translate anything at that point. Uh, commit, which just means that you make the best translation of that fragment you can at that point. Uh, verb, which uh, does the same with a verb prediction, and we had another one for the next word that does the same thing. And so that in that formulation, you, every time you get a word, you just choose an action. And if you have some examples of good actions, this is where the imitation learning comes in, uh, then you just try to imitate uh, the good uh, examples and try to generalize from uh, those good examples when uh, you can uh, take what action. How were you training the model? Were you training it on kind of existing translation, you know, some corpus of translated, you know, phrases or documents or something like that? Right. We were using a standard, uh, like web corpus of, uh, of, of, of parallel data. So it's not ideal because it's not actual simultaneously translated data, which um, there's an, another paper uh, by Hoha that uh, and others that shows that uh, you know these look very different. Uh, so that's a weakness in it, but it's also just because that data doesn't really exist in large measure. There's some, but it's not enough to really train a model uh, in the traditional way. So yeah, we were using basic uh, parallel data. Okay, it strikes me that actual um, simultaneously translated 
data would be, you know, there's a noise aspect to it because the translators are making these mistakes that, um, you know, they might not make if they had full access to full information. Is that exactly yeah, a factor that's, that's, that? That that's a problem. Uh, I don't know if it's a problem or not, but it's definitely an aspect of the data. Uh, so there's actually some interesting data um, where they have three translators. I think I think it's Japanese to English. Uh, three translators of different. I guess you could say experience levels or ranks. And, uh, so, uh, and they have them all translating the same stuff simultaneously. And you can actually see like the kind, the different kinds of things that they do and strategies they use and mistakes they make and stuff like that. It's pretty interesting. Huh? Wow. Interesting. You were starting to introduce the paper that I saw you present the pathologies paper. Can you tell us a little bit about the background and motivation of that paper? Yeah, so there's been an uptick in interest, well, obviously in deep learning in general. I mean, every, everybody knows that and who's going to be listening to this podcast. Uh, but uh, one of the criticisms uh, of deep models is that they're black boxes. So if you have like logistic regression or something, uh, some kind of linear model, you can look at the weights. And even though that's not a perfect method of of analyzing a model, you can get a sense of why the model is making the decisions it's making, right? Uh, but with a deep model, the it's it's very difficult, right? And the deeper and more complex the architecture, the harder it gets to interpret uh, what these models are doing and why. Um, and so, because we want to interpret these models, uh, we thought, well, uh, let's look at what they're doing. And so, what we found is that they exhibit. Uh, the what we call these pathological behaviors. So um, they don't do what you know any reasonable person would expect they would do when they're given something uh, that they're not used to seeing. Um, so I think the the example I used in the presentation was uh, you can reduce so for a question answering like you can reduce uh, the the question to just the word did. Right. And not only so it, it still gives the right answer, but the confidence in the right answer goes up if to like 91 percent if you just ask did. Right. Which which is a ridiculous. Yeah. So so I found that the example really interesting. Can you let's walk through that in a little bit more detail. It was um, well, let's actually let's go back to the data set. The data set is question answering. Was it squad? It was squad. Yeah. For that one. OK. And so. Tell us about what you were trying to do with a, a, a given uh, example from the squad data set. Right. So um, so you're given some context, like uh, uh, some kind of uh, short uh, se sequence of sentences with some information, and you give it a question, and uh, you, know, you want the model to give you um, an answer to the question based on the context. Um, and intuitively you want the confidence, the final confidence of the model to reflect the value, the sort of the uh, value of the, inf the information in the, in the question, right? So um, like if I ask you, um, so if I, if, I, if I give you a, a paragraph to read and I ask you, um, you know, what <laughs> or something, right? So you have no idea what I'm asking. Right? <laughs> uh, you wouldn't say, yeah, I'm 91% confident that, um, you know, the answer is X. Um, but we found out that these models actually do this, uh, a lot. <laughs> um, and, um, so we wanted to, you know, systematically show that this is, this is like a systemic problem in some of, in some of these models. 
Okay. And so how did you go about showing that? Uh, so we would incrementally remove uh, words uh, from, so for a squad, for example, uh, we would incrementally remove uh, words and just observe, um, so without changing the answer, actually, and and observe uh, how the confidence shifted and how, and, and uh, what we found is that, you know, it doesn't really comport with what humans, so we also did some human experiments to, to verify this, but it doesn't really comport with what a human would expect. And, uh, nor does, uh, the human performance, uh, reflect necessarily what, uh, the models do under these circumstances. And so the, the words that you're removing are from the, the context passage or from the answer. Uh, from the, from the question or the question rather. Yes. Right, yes. right, right. So you've got, you've got these three pieces then you've got the kind of the sequence of sentences. That's the context. You've got the, uh, the question and the answer. And so you're removing words from the question and you're trying to see the way that that changes the prediction of the, or the, confidence level in predicting the answer. Is that the right way to, th- to right, think about right. it? That's right. Yes. And then if I'm remembering this correctly, you you would kind of sequence the words that you removed by, were you sequencing on the one that was most likely or had like the least information or the most information or something like that? Right. So we, we removed what we call the uh, unimportant words. Uh, so, right. So we want to remove the words with like, without changing the answer. How did you determine the unimportance of a word? So let me think about this. I haven't actually looked at this paper in a while, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah. So, um, I believe it was based on the, yeah, it based on the change in the confidence. That's right. (laughs) You were removing the words that minimize the changing confidence of the, right. the answer. And then right. I'm trying to remember the, like you had, you showed a sequence of the words that you removed. And I guess what was strange about it is that you re- oftentimes you were removing words that as a human, you would think had the most meaning in the question. And you ended up with this, you know, just like a question word. Right. I'm trying to capture like the visual on the podcast, which is sometimes hard to do, but it was really interesting to see the way that that evolved uh, on that slide. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that was one of the sort of, sort of pathological behaviors, right? So what uh, it doesn't, so nothing that we, I don't want to say nothing we did, but a lot of what we did just doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't go with what we would expect. Right. So what the model thinks is, an important term might not necessarily be what a human would consider an important term. Did you end up in this paper taxonomizing these pathological behaviors? Are there, you know, do they, are are there, how many of them are there? Are there names or is it more exploring kind of this one particular one that we've been discussing? Uh, It was uh, more exploratory. I mean, so we did have a section uh, so we talked about model overconfidence, which is one problem, right? Um, and we, I'm trying to think, did we give these names? I don't think, I don't think we named the pathologies. I think we just sort of just described them. 
And so one of them is this uh, overconfidence. Uh, what are some of the other ones that you tended to see? Right. So I think rather than I think the different a different way of thinking about it is that uh, so we tried this on a number of different tasks. So so the the way we so the the method that we used was sort of this word removal, right? Uh, and we did this for um, squad. We did this for visual question answering, and we did this for uh, SNLI, which looks for things like contradictions and uh, things like that. Uh, and we noticed uh, so, and we and we showed uh, the same sort of the same kinds of pathologies um, um, on all of these different tasks uh, when by by using uh, input reduction. Okay, so you kind of the same idea of successively removing words, and you ended up in the same kind of weird part where you're left with words that wouldn't be the most useful ones that you would expect. Right. Right. And so right with a right with the confidence not necessarily being what you'd expect either. Yeah. Right. Right. And so what what did all this tell you about neural network models and trying to interpret them? Uh that it's it's difficult. Uh so I <laughs> which is in the title, right? Um so I mean, you know, I mean it's not necessarily surprising. Uh so there's been some previous work that has shown similar things for especially sort of images. Uh, there, there's this notion of like rubbish examples uh, where uh, you show what looks like random noise and, you know, you, the uh, the classifier or whatever gives you 90 percent confidence that it's, you know, a flower or something. Um, and so this is uh, kind of this is definitely related to that. Um, and so we also, you know, uh, used a proposed a method of trying to mitigate this using uh, a kind of regularization uh, on the uh by training on the reduced inputs. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think we're not just trying to say that, you know, deep learning models are garbage or whatever. We're just, uh, trying to identify sort of the shortcomings and understanding them so that we can try to address that. Right. And did the, did the regularization approach that you tried, uh, I'm presuming that that worked to some extent? It did. Uh, so we were. So the nice thing about it is that uh, we were able to uh, use this to, uh, with almost no change in accuracy. So we were able to get more re- a more reasonable distribution of confidences uh, that looks more like you know what a human would res- would expect uh, without really hurting accuracy. Okay. Um, so so even. Um, you know, even though the model itself is still difficult to interpret, there is a way of of training it uh, that gives you, I guess you could say, more interpretable confidences at, at the end of the prediction. Is it this specific approach to regularization, the one that you tried, that you found to have the advantage of, you know, let's say correcting these models in this way? Or is it regularization in general, you know, in trying to to force the networks to generalize more that, you know, had some kind of general improvement? Right. So I don't uh, know that we tried dropout or something like that. Uh, I guess I could uh, ask the other people who are working on this. Uh, but uh, we just showed that this particular uh, form of regularization uh, helps. Um, so um, it's possible I mean, I, I doubt it would hurt. I, mean, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, to use uh, some other kind of regularization, uh, if you want to call it dropout regularization. Um, 
Uh, but uh, yeah, in our paper, we just showed this particular method works. What have you done kind of in this direction since then? Or, or where do you, you know, how would you see extending this, this kind of work? Um, yeah, so I personally haven't uh, extended this uh, since last month or whenever we published this. I guess it was maybe, maybe it was two months ago. Um, but uh, there is another uh, paper, a workshop paper by an undergraduate student at the University of Maryland uh, named Eric Wallace um, that is uh, attempting to do something similar. I think he's using K nearest neighbors um, to. So he was also the second author on this paper. Uh, to try to, uh, so I haven't read his paper, I have to confess, but I think he's trying to do that to, uh, do something similar to try to mitigate, uh, make these models more interpretable. Maybe tell me a little bit about how this particular paper fits into kind of your broader research agenda nowadays. Sure. Um, so going back to verb prediction a little bit. So in 2016, I published this paper on uh, verb prediction in Japanese and German, mostly Japanese. Uh, and uh, so and that was using just linear models. And uh, so I'm also interested in psycholinguistics. So I was interested in sort of comparing the features that uh, that mo that uh, model was using to make its verb predictions to what humans seem to be using to make the same predictions. Right. So we always try to I use the word we loosely, but uh, some people try to make, you know, these kinds of analogies between machine learning models and humans. But uh, without actually looking at what the model is doing, it's not clear that that is justified. So as we're moving to these, as we have moved to, you know, more deep learning methods, uh, I think if you want to make claims about, you know, a model, for example, informing, you know, something about what a human is doing. I think it's helpful to have some sense of what the model is actually doing uh, internally. Um, so on that verb prediction project, for example, um, uh, we will, I looked, I just looked at the weights of the model and, uh, you know, and, and tried to uh, look at uh, how, you know, how adding certain uh, features that were linguistically interesting affected the predictions. Uh, and you can also do that with a deep model. Um, you can also look at something like attention weights, those kinds of things. Um, so I, I, I guess what I'm pushing here is, you know, uh, accuracy on a data set is an important uh, metric to look at, but it's not the only metric. It's not all we care about. Uh, you know, for and if we're doing scientific inquiry, inquiry, then we want to look at the model itself. We want to understand why the model is doing what it's doing to the best that we can. Uh, which is not again not to say that accuracy isn't important, but uh, as someone who's interested also in linguistic questions, um, it's uh, much more satisfying scientifically if we can peek inside the models and see what they're doing, and if we can't, to at least be able to have some sense of why we can't, if that makes sense. What's your sense of the kind of relationship between psycholinguistics and the kind of work that's happening on the machine learning and, and deep learning side? Are there, have there been any interesting kind of cross pollinations or cross results there? Uh, there have, and for quite some time, I think. Uh, so I think there's so much potential that's only beginning to be uh, the surface of which is only beginning to be scratched. Um, so for example, uh, there's a whole, you know, 
area of uh, neuroscience of language where we have uh, these really interesting experiments where, you know, you give a person a stimulus of some sentences or words or something and you, you see, you put, you, uh, you give them an EEG helmet or you take an fMRI and you see how their brain is, is uh, responding to these stimuli. Um, so I think that's an, inc it's an incredible treasure trove of potential machine learning research. Um, and, and so it's starting to be, uh, done. Uh, it's been done for a, a few years, uh, by some people. Um, so these, so for example, uh, if you wear an EEG helmet, uh, you know, your, your brain produces, uh, certain, I'll just for simplicity, I'll call them brain waves, but it produces a graph that's called an ERP. Uh, event-related uh, potential, and uh, you know, I think it's really a really interesting question. So, what can you predict by looking at an ERP? Uh, can you uh, predict uh, other aspects of uh, that person's uh, linguistic performance based on looking at these uh, these kinds of things? But even outside of sort of neuroscience, which um, requires a more specialized background, arguably. Um, you know, so, uh, for my verb prediction work, I looked at, uh, what are called case markers in, in Japanese. And it turns out that both the classifier, the, uh, uh, the model that we built and, uh, the humans, there's previous resources that shows that humans also do this. Uh, we're using these case markers in Japanese to, uh, predict verbs. And so that was an, an instance where it looked like the model and the humans were using the same information in an interesting way. Um, and so I think there's a lot of potential there for, for, so for example, you might look at a model and, and think to test whether, uh, what the humans are doing is related to what the model is doing or vice versa. Um, so I think there's a lot of potential there. Awesome. Uh, besides the, the paper that we've been discussing here or that we discussed previously here, are there any interesting references that you would point someone to who's interested in exploring this area more deeply? Uh, sure. Uh, so the one that, I mean, there, there's a lot. Um, I, I can't, I'm not going to be able to name them off the top of my head, but one that comes to mind is uh, the, the paper on uh, rubbish examples. Um, so if you just Google rubbish examples, I think it'll, it'll, uh, deep learning what rubbish examples, I think it'll come up. Um, so I think that's, uh, probably at least that's coming to my, my, my mind right now, the most related paper. And that was published before quite a bit before ours. And that's more related to visual, uh, task, I think, than, uh, than linguistic tasks, but it's a similar idea and was uh, certainly, uh, part of the inspiration for our work. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Alvin, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Sure. Thank you very much for having me. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.